Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Cormdale Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life and today we're talking about the ongoing decline of the main line. I like how you enunciated that. <laughs> it's a so lot of lines. Actually, let's be honest. The podcast today is just me and Bethany because Dusty still has a cough that he's Man. had for like six years. Yeah, it's been a while. Hemelman's still on vacation. So us and Dusty's cough. Us and Dusty's cough. It's on this a episode. new year. You're Dusty, welcome. hey, basically, Dusty only wants to say like one sentence at a time because if he says more than that, he gets into he a cough. So he's, yeah. his just interjections are just nice and timely and short. I would just like to publicly recognize that I'm still here. It's a new year, and <laughs> Hemelman's still not here. That's true. That's a fair point. So I might be coughing, but but you're present. I'm I'm showing up. Also, we need to shout out uh, listener Kelsey who who gave us uh, some treats. Gosh, weeks ago, showed up again in a big way with some amazing snacks for this podcast. Thank you, Kelsey. Also, I told you last episode that as we start the new year, we're going to engage with some listener feedback. Man, we got some great listener feedback. You guys, we have intelligent, thoughtful listeners. Folks, be emailing. Man, and people who are like subject matter experts in a lot of things. So here's what I like. We did a, an episode. Bethany, you're going to have to find it was what a while this ago. episode number was. I believe it was 405, uh, The Limits of Psychiatry. Episode 405, The Limits of Psychiatry. Uh, we got some feedback from Jay. Let me read you. And Jay is a listener. And man, so I think sent this email like the day the podcast came out yeah. or maybe the next day. He was like, can I just listen to that? Good try. I just like to give you a little <laughs> feedback. It was it was not quite good try, but I want to read. Jay, thanks for reaching out. I want to read a few things from Jay's email. Uh, here's how it starts. I'm grateful for your cultural commentary, and I find it integral in my understanding of the church's cultural relations in our contemporary contrast. I'm currently a member of a church in Duluth, Minnesota, where I'm on the elder training track. For context, I'm a primary care physician who had the unfortunate timing of starting my practice in the midst of anxiety epidemic 2020, as such, I have many patients who take medications for a variety of ailments. So Jay's writing as a Christian and as a doctor, an MD, primary care physician, who just wanted to say, hey, you guys said some stuff about medicine. I want to chime in. That's my field. And I love when we have listeners who are like, hey, you talked about something I actually know something about. So let me, uh, let me push back a little bit. Uh, in the first paragraph or the second paragraph of this message, Jay basically mentions, hey, I, I try to be holistic as I, as I tackle anyone with an ailment or mental challenge. I'm trying to think about non-medicinal rem remedies. I'm trying to think about what medications might help. I'm trying to think about what kind of therapy might help. I'm trying to think about nutrition. I'm trying to, you know, as a good Christian, he's trying to think about all the elements that affect health in a holistic way. And uh, he says he lives in a place that, you know, is not highly Christian, but when he's talking to a Christian— he also wants to emphasize the importance of community and being in a local church and so forth. He says, as I listened to your podcast on pharmacotherapy, I I've distilled my concerns to the following two points. Jay's first objection was just that we, we didn't have a medical doctor on here talking about this. He's like, hey, if you were going to talk about medicine, could you have had a doctor on? Well, the answer is, yes, we could have, but that's not our goal. Um, and so it gives me a chance to reiterate, what is this podcast and what is it not? Because often this happens when we try to tackle issues that, you know, do tap into various areas of expertise. People are like, well, why didn't you bring a doctor on and interview them about uh, psychopharmacology? Well, the simple answer is because that's not what this podcast is. 
this podcast and we try to frame it that way. And so this is a good chance for me to reiterate what it is and is not. First of all, it is not medical advice. It is not tax advice. Please consult your tax professional. There are a lot of things that we are not professionals on. We are some pastors and church leaders just trying to have a conversation about things that affect the church and about the church's relationship to culture. So when we are doing a topic like that one, what we were doing, and I said at the beginning of the podcast, we're reading, we're engaging this particular article from Marco Ramos at Yale University that is a literature review on these two books. And so we're just engaging with what he is saying. Now, I think what Jay's pushback is, yeah, but what he's saying doesn't represent, you know, what the whole medical community would think. There's doctors who would disagree with him. And I would just say, yeah, Jay, you're right about that. That's why we were trying to say clearly, hey, this is, this is not a podcast about how should you think about medicine. This is a podcast specifically engaging this article. So that's what we try to do here is to take a topic in culture or a topic in the church or something someone has written and just engage it as some faithful Christians trying to apply it to our own lives. And as, as Bethany reads at the beginning of every podcast, right, we're trying to talk about how the gospel connects to the questions and issues of every life. So just please understand, yeah, we don't, having an expert on the podcast isn't what we do here. It's not because there aren't experts on these things in our world uh, and in our churches. Um, It's just because that's not the goal of this podcast. And so occasionally, I mean, probably three or four times a year, somebody's like, hey, how come you didn't have so-and-so who's an expert on, and you could have interviewed them. And that would be an interesting podcast too. We should probably do that. But that's not what the Wednesday conversation is intended to do. Um. Jay's second pushback is just to say that um, there were some things said about medication that he feels like were misguided, meaning the way Marco Ramos represented some things, not every doctor would agree with. Specifically, Marco Ramos in that article said that certain medications have about a 30% chance of improving symptoms. And Jay feels like that's a pretty round number and it's a pretty, you're painting with a pretty broad brush. Certain medications for certain conditions can have more impact than that. And hey, again, that's fair. Um, Again, we weren't trying to be exhaustive in our treatment of this topic. We were just trying to engage with what this writer said. And uh, Jay does acknowledge that SSRIs, uh, which are, um, what does that stand for? Serotonin, serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's the specific class of antidepressants that, that's the specific class of antidepressants that most people take. Uh, he does say, uh, as Marco Ramos said, that there have been relatively zero advancements in the treatment of mental health since the advent of the SSRI. And that's essentially the same thing Marco Ramos was pushing on, is just to say, hey, we haven't learned anything new about the biology of the brain. So, Jay, thanks for your feedback. I love yeah. I love listeners who are like, hey, I, I thought you guys could have done better there. Yeah. I'm never... Sure. <laughs> we most, most weeks, we could do better. Bethany, don't you agree? Yes, I agree. Yeah, Bethany thinks we could do better most weeks. But you know what? We're, <laughs> no. trying, to, we're trying to do one thing and not everything, yeah. and that's okay. We're it's basically like, saying, at least in that episode, here's an article we read. It's yep. this guy's take. Take it for what it's worth. That already is about 30,000 foot away yeah. from. And I think Jay, Jay has a good concern here, and I want to mention it because I, I feel the same thing as a pastor. He's like, hey, as a doctor, lots of people are already skeptical of medicine. Sure. This didn't help. You know, this, If people listen to this podcast, they probably just were more skeptical of medicine. And that's not always helpful to me as a doctor. And I, I get that because the, you know, every time there's a podcast about somebody's bad experience in the church, I feel the same way. I'm like, Hey, you're kind of making my job harder because yeah. now there's more people who are going to be, 
you know, mistrusting of, of the church and of pastors. And so I get that. So thanks, Jay, for your feedback. Thanks for being a listener who cares enough to write and interact thoughtfully. And also props for starting a practice in the middle of a ep- anxiety epidemic, yeah. he calls it, but like also the pandemic and yes. still at it. So stay yeah. with it. Um, that's actually only the intro to this podcast. <laughs> uh, that's not even what we're talking about. What we, you what got we, more mail? You got, got more mail? Well, I didn't get mail, but I did have someone send me an article from Mark Tooley, who's the um, chief leader for the Institute for Religion and Democracy. And um, the article is in World Magazine, and it's an article called There Go the Churches. And as Bethany said, we titled this podcast The Ongoing Decline of the Mainline because this is just another article about the decline of mainline Protestantism. The reason I find this interesting is because I think you know, we're living in a 50-year story here, or maybe an 80-year story, of the, the shift in Protestantism in America. If you dial the clock back to the 1950s, uh, mainline Protestantism, by which, you know, mainline would be Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Anglican, Congregational. It's the, the large Protestant communions or denominations. Those were the powerhouses in the middle of the 20th century. That was where all the energy was. Those were the growing churches. It's like the SEC. Yeah, it was like the SEC of American Christianity. The Catholic community was small and semi-marginalized, as was the sort of evangelical fundamentalist community. Um, And we talked about this um, months ago when we did our podcast on sort of the fundamental liberal, the fundamentalist liberalist controversy back in the 1920s. But basically what's happened since then, so in the wake of the sexual revolution, all those mainline churches kind of decided, you know what, to be quote-unquote relevant to the modern world, we need, to, um, we need to accommodate on issues of theology and especially on issues of sexual, sexual ethics. And so most of these churches have split multiple times now over issues related to um, theology or sexual ethics. And, and first theology and kind of now sexual ethics. Right. Yes. First, it was like, you know, did Jesus rise from the dead? <laughs> Should we still believe in miracles? Is the Bible the authoritative word of God? Things like that. Um, they were kind of moving away from some of those things. And then more recently, yeah, m- you know, most of these would now, m- most of them started by ordaining women, then ordaining homosexuals, then being okay with homosexual marriage, then being okay with, you know, all, all, all the sort of sexual revolution, LGBTQ stuff now, that's kind of all been the sort of um, trajectory. And Mark Tooley, the reason this article was interesting to me is because he is a lifelong United Methodist and a convictional United Methodist. I mean, he, his uh, bio says, as a lifelong United Methodist, Mark has been active in United Methodist renewal since 1988. So this is a guy who's spent most of his life trying to renew the United Methodist Church. Here is the opening paragraph of this article. Uh, The date of the article, by the way, is December 1st, so it's about a month old. It's last year. It's last last year, year. you guys. This is last year's news. Just days ago, 487 United Methodist churches were approved for disaffiliation from the denomination, bringing the total of ratified exits to 1,314. Hundreds more have already voted to exit and are awaiting final approval. Almost all of them are theologically conservative churches anticipating the denomination's official and enthusiastic liberalization on LGBTQ issues. 
when its governing general conference meets in 2024. By the end of next year, the deadline for exiting with church property, at least 3,000 and possibly 5,000 churches are expected to exit. United Methodism has 30,000 U.S. churches. Denominational agencies are prepping for a 38% drop in funding, which implies an approximate expected membership loss of 2.3 million members from the nearly 6.3 million the denomination had in 2020. That is not a minor exodus. It's a lot. It's a lot of people. Um, And here's what this shows you, um, that when churches move away from orthodoxy, move away from biblical integrity and faithfulness, their people who are faithful also move away from those churches. This has been, this script has played out so frequently in so many different denominations where the denomination chooses to liberalize as a way of sort of accommodating to cultural wins. And as a result, what they end up losing is they lose churches, they lose money, they lose people, and they decline. And the stats here are staggering um, as far as, you know, even just these stats for the Methodist church, they're, they're losing, you know, a third of their people essentially um, over the next few years, this article anticipates. Um, it goes on to mention um, some of the large churches, White's Chapel, United Methodist, outside Dallas with 6,000 worshipers weekly. Um, St. Andrew United Methodist in Plano, Texas with 6,500 members. These are, not, these are not like your small town Methodist churches. No. These are the big dogs. These are big like, you know what? We're going to go ahead and get out of here. Um, and, you know, this is an important thing for those of us who love the gospel and those of us who love the church. And here's why. Uh, I, I like, Dusty was like, hey, why are we doing this article? You know, it's like a short article and it just says like, here's some stats. Cool, you know? And usually when we do stuff on the Wednesday conversation, we try to do some longer form articles that are more substantive. But here's the, um, the, the reason this matters to me is because I think for those of us who love the gospel and those of us who love the church and those of us who love Christ, we should be thinking in terms of like, hey, what do we want our grandkids to inherit? What do we want to leave behind 40 years from now when we're all old and cranky and there's some you know, new young generation rising up? What do we want to be passing on to them? And you should be thinking about that now, even if you're a young person now, we should have a long-term mindset for how do we want to see the church thrive? And what this shows us is, and, and the reason this matters to me is because theological liberalism is never a winning strategy for vitality and for a church's health. And that, again, that script has played out over and over again. And so there's an important um, calling for us to retain the gospel, to pass it on to the next generation, to make sure our churches are grounded in good Orthodox theology, and to make sure that any any um, theological debates, any things are like, well, let's let's think more about that. Let's have a debate about that. That those are that we think about those in terms of maybe decades, and not years. Yes, you know, because what most of these churches are doing is following the winds of whatever the sort of hot issues in the culture are. So this article uses, you know, LGBTQ issues are the, are the breaking point for the Methodists. And Yoram Hazoni in his book on conservatism says, hey, the basic instinct, there's two ways to think about change. There's a radical instinct and there's a conservative instinct. The radical instinct is like French revolution. It's just like blow the whole thing up, burn it all down. And, you know, it's like revolution. And 
that's the Marxist kind of way of thinking. It's, it's like revolutionary change, right? And he says, hey, the conserv- when we talk about being conservative, conservative does not mean never change. What it means is change very slowly yeah, and change in a very measured thoughtful, and predictable way with a real slow trajectory so that there can be debate, discussion, um, hashing through, thinking through, dealing with the implications. And he, he actually, as his only writes about America's founding, he says that's kind of the, how the founders set up the Constitution is just to say, you can change it, but it takes a lot of debate, a lot of thought, two-thirds of the, or, you know, the three-fourths of the states have to ratify. There has to be a really thoughtful process for bringing any kind of deep societal change. And uh, th- these articles just say to me, that's how we need to think about theological faithfulness as well. It's just to say, you know what? I sometimes say, hey, you know what? If I, there might be a couple of theological issues I'm wrong on. We'll know in a hundred years. If, you know, if, it's like, if we should be changing something, we should go real slow. Yeah. Because these kinds of articles say that when you when it's like, hey, here's what the culture around us thinks. So let's adapt to that way of thinking or let's liberalize or loosen our sort of um, uh, structures or boundaries for how we think about sexual ethics or biblical fidelity. That is never a good strategy. It's never a Christ-honoring strategy. And it's never a strategy that leads to health and thriving and growth. When I first read this article, I was, when I got done, because it's only a couple of pages, I thought of- <laughs> Didn't uh, take you long. I immediately thought of Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, because it feels like that book and that idea, the United Methodist Church just kind of drifted into. They just drifted into of just adopting the winds of the culture you know, slowly, and then a couple years later, a couple decades later, you have these mass exodus and- so anyway, that that's what that's the book that came to mind and just kind of the heartbeat of like not pleasing all of the voices and all of the drift and actually just trying to major on some majors. Well, and I think having a backbone too. Like this is right, having being an evangelical means having some convictions about what's true and what matters and being willing to say, yeah, it's fine if all my neighbors think I'm backwards. I don't really care. This is true and this is what we're committed to. And so that evangelical sensibility in Christians, it, you know, evangelical is a word that is supposed to imply that we, we hold to the evangel, the gospel, right? And it's the gospel that lies at the center and that we're ferocious about guarding that, defending that. It's funny to me that um, you hear a lot in, <laughs> if you listen to, if you go to any conference, any church conference right now, you'll hear a lot about like words like listening, um, you know, words like dialogue, um, debate, discussion. You hear very little about process. Def- you feel very little. You hear li- very little about defending things, fighting for things, holding the line on things. And I think the reason is because there's we, we live in a culture that just is like shaped by progressivism, where the the instinct is we just we should just always be like exploring, and the idea of holding to something or fighting for something or defending something is like a reactive kind of idea. And actually that's not true. Like as, as Christians, we just need to say there is a, <laughs> that the scriptures tell us, right? Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Yeah. Like guard the faith once for all handed down to the saints. So th- there's this guarding, protecting, fighting for um, courage that needs to be present in a church and in your life as a Christian. 
you need to not just be the person who's like, oh, I want to read and think about all the new stuff that's out there. You also need to be a person who's like, I know orthodoxy well enough to guard it and defend it and fight for it. And, um, you know, stats like these, if you think about what's happened in mainline Protestantism in the last 75 years, it should make you more jealous to say, man, I don't, I don't want us to be on that same trajectory. I want to be part of a church and a movement that's experiencing renewal, that's holding to the heart of the gospel, that is not accommodating to what the culture is, that does innovate, but in ways that are slow and in ways that are missionary-minded rather than accommodation-minded. accommodation, accommodation Let me read this and then ask you a question, Bob. Exiting United Methodist churches or quitting their denomination for both pragmatic and theological reasons. Loyalties to denominations that once persisted across generations are suddenly ending. Successful congregations, even if denominational, often function independently. American non-denominational Christianity continues to grow while most denominations decline. Speak to that a little bit about how American Christianity is growing, but denominational denominations are declining. It's kind of the same principle that um, uh, Robert Putnam, is that the, the book Bowling Alone? I'm trying to remember the sociologist that wrote that book. But that was a, written maybe 20 years ago. And his whole thesis was like, everybody used to be in a bowling league in the 80s because people were just joiners. It was just like, yeah, that's what you did societally. And what's happened is we've become much more isolated and much more individualistic. Social media has probably accelerated that. Technology has accelerated that. The breakdown of the family has accelerated that. But basically, no one belongs to the Kiwanis Club anymore. No one's in a bowling league anymore. Very few people are in a golf league anymore. You know, we just don't do stuff with other people. And I think that's when he says the pragmatic, like that's why denominations are less sticky than they used to be. Cause it used to be like, man, if your parents were Presbyterian, you're probably inclined to be a Presbyterian. Or if you grew up Catholic, you're probably inclined to be Catholic just cause there's a family. That's what my family is. Yeah. But that's less and less the case We're we're sort of more and more choose your own adventure, choose your own religion kind of people. So there's that reality that America is just less um, passing on of sort of those kinds of connections but, you know, that, that paragraph also mentions theological reasons that people would leave denominations. And, and I think that's the one that is most interesting to me. And he does say, you know, non-denominational Christianity continues to grow. That probably has something to do with, it, with that. Denominations are less sticky, but it also has something to do with this thing, right? Like if the Methodist denomination, the Presbyterians and the Lutheran, if all these denominations were still like very orthodox, I think you'd see more people going toward them. In fact, that's, I think what, like what it's interesting what you see with the Anglican church in North America, the ACNA, the Presbyterians that are conservative PCA and EPC churches. Um, you, you see actually people moving toward those denominations because they're Orthodox. And so evangelicals who want a sense of history or want to be connected to a denomination will find their way to those denominations because those denominations are still orthodox. I don't hear of any evangelicals becoming Methodists. And this is the reason because right. like, well, we know what direction the Methodist church is going and it's, it's not toward orthodoxy. And so people who are hungry for um, theological richness for a church that believes the gospel and that it, that cares about good theology, which I think is most of us who, most of us who love the Bible and love Christ, we want to be in churches that care about theology. We might not be, intellectuals we don't want to you know study books all the time but we do want to be in churches where there's a robust healthy center and where we believe doctrine matters and so the people who are most inclined to be like engaged with the church are also going to want to be engaged with churches that 
have that kind of an ethos to them. And I mean, just functionally, I would just say like, yeah. And if you don't believe the Bible is true, I mean, I say this to, <laughs> I say this frequently. If you don't believe the gospel is true or you're not sure the Bible is true, why should I come to your church? Like, I'm yeah. just like, what are we doing? What are we even doing? What are we, what are we doing there? Is this a social club? Should I come just cause like, it's fun to be here? I mean, there's, there's no reason to be here. Just like there's no, re- you know, if I don't like bowling, I'm not going to be long to a bowling league. I'm not, people used to do that just because it's like it's what Uncle Joe does on Thursdays, and so I just go along because it's just it's a place to associate with people. People don't do that anymore. Yeah. And so in the same way, if the church is just a place to associate with other people, nothing's going to hold people in the church. What's going to hold us is conviction about the gospel, as it should be. And then even non-Christians who are coming to our church and other churches in non-denominational Christianity right now are they want to see your conviction. They're hungry for something. Yeah, yeah. like show me what you believe. <laughs> They're not looking for a social club. They're I'm in, not looking for anything yeah. flimsy. I'm looking for a convictional, yeah. kind of show me the money Christianity. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And I might not agree with your convictions yet, but I don't. I want to be in a place where people are convictional and where I can ask questions like, why do you believe that? Why are you convicted about that? What is it that animates you and drives you? Um. Most people tell you any good organization, call it, you know, any good business, any good sports team, any good church has a, has a convictional nature to it. I'm just like, we, we know what we're doing here and why we're doing it. And that's why pe- that's why those institutions tend to thrive. And the idea of like, yeah, we're just here. We love each other. We're not sure why we're here. Those things aren't going to sustain themselves. And that's just reality. So, Hey, as we kick off the new year, I want to encourage you listeners um, to ask the question, what do you want to do this year to, to deepen your convictions theologically? Um, we've been reading through the wonderful works of God for a couple of years now. We'll spend the next few months finishing up that project. Hopefully for some of you listeners, that's been a good journey, but what do you want to do to strengthen your grasp of theology? What's a book you can read this year? What's a podcast you might chase down? What could you do to be part of some equipping program in your local church to grow theologically? Um, we ought to be people, if we love the gospel, who care about good theology and who are growing in our grasp of good theology so that we have something to pass on to the next generations coming behind us. And we don't just leave them church buildings and church property, but also church doctrine and good orthodoxy. So let's not be um, like these sad churches that are um, abandoning the truth. Let's be the kind of people who hold to the truth. And I want to encourage you as you begin a new year to ask, What might that look like for you? We'll hope to continue the journey as we engage this podcast in weeks to come. And we'll see you again next week. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.